Welcome to the Dialogue Book Report, where we talk about books and literature of interest to LDS readers. I'm Andrew Hall, the Literature Book Review Editor at Dialogue, the Journal of Mormon Thought, coming to you from Fukuoka, Japan. And I'm joined today by two of my favorite authors, practitioners of the fine art of weaving weird and fantastic tales, David, or DJ Butler, and William Morris. David, welcome. Thank you. So I'm Dave. Uh, I'm a writer of speculative fiction, broadly speaking, science fiction and fantasy and related genres. By day, I practice other dark crafts uh, like corporate training and the practice of law to uh, feed my family because fiction is, does, a, does a pretty poor job of that. Yeah, including, I think we're going to talk about the novel I co-wrote with Aaron Ritchie, The Jupiter Knife. So sometimes I get to put a lot of great Mormon stuff in my books, and this, this series is one of those. Great. Thank you. And William? Hey, yeah, I am William Morris. I write, edit, and sometimes write about fiction and literature, especially Mormon fiction. Uh, some of you may know me from the blog A Motley Vision, which is now pretty much on mothballs, but was reincarnated as a newsletter where I tackle Mormon literature topics. Just wrapped up season, uh, season one, which was a look at Martin J. Clark's essay collection, Liberating Form. My latest work to come out is from BCC Press. It's called The Darkest Abyss, Strange Mormon Stories, and all the stories are very strange and very Mormon. Both of you, I know, write a, a wide variety of stories, but today we are going to focus on these Mormon tales, these weird Mormon tales. So Dave, tell us about The Jupiter Knife and maybe the Hiram Woolley series in general. Yeah, so Aaron Ritchie and I, I should say Aaron is not uh, LDS or Mormon in any sense. Uh, my co-writer is a Catholic guy out of Colorado, and we concocted the series Hiram Woolley is a 1930s Lehigh, Utah sugar beet farmer and a practitioner of his grandma Hetty's traditional magical lore. So if you read something like Mormonism in the Magic Worldview or Rough Stone Rolling and you were horrified, this is not the book for you. If you read those books and thought, ooh, that's very interesting and kind of cool in some weird ways, then maybe this is. Hiram uses uh, written paper amulets and dousing rods and all the sort of paraphernalia that was common in the eclectic stream of American folk magic. Well, frankly, I don't know why I say was, is still part of American folk magic today. I think the real genre is occult detective. He's sort of a paladin. He, he's, uh, you know, what, what, is a, what does a holy warrior with magical powers look like in the 20th century? This guy's a great war veteran who is uh, a widower and an orphan and on a sort of personal quest with his double-A Ford pickup truck and his adopted Navajo son, Michael, to help the poor and the widows and the fatherless who were suffering in the Great Depression. I love this series both The Cunning Man and then the second one, The Jupiter Knife. I mean, Hiram Woolley is just such a great character. He's a person I want to be around. He's wise, but humble. He wants to do the right thing. The, the relationship between he and his adopted son, I think, is a really beautiful creation. William, what did you think about these books? Well, of course, I, I love them. I am a, a huge fan of, of Dave's work, both Mormon and, and non-Mormon. Yeah, what you're saying about Hiram Woolley, I... I lived ages 4 through 12 in Kanab, Utah, and uh, there are some Hiram Woolies around. They weren't folk magic practitioners as far as I know, but certainly those kind of men in terms of temperaments and the ability to do many different things, the ability uh, and, the, and the desire to minister to people who, who needed help and who had a, 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 certainly a folk wisdom, if not folk magic, that they practiced. Um, one of them was my 
my first Scoutmaster and, and going to Scout Camp the year I was 12 was an awesome experience because I don't know that if, if the rural Mormon towns make them quite like that anymore in the sense that, that men and women who, who knew how to, how to hunt but didn't glory in it, didn't care about all the, all the gear that came with it, just wanted to stock their pantries, who knew how to farm but also knew that it was pretty precarious and that there was no sense having a garden if it didn't help feed you, didn't do it just for show who attended church and were faithful about it, but had absolutely no aspirations to, to higher callings or setting themselves up as, as knowers of doctrine and, and, and things like that. And it was very helpful in keeping me, who you know has at least enough uh, ego in me to, to become a writer, uh, and hopefully keeping me a little bit more grounded. How did you come up with the character? I think actually, initially, we talked about the the time period, and because the '30s are such a such a time of big transition, in in a lot of ways, in, in terms of urbanization, in terms of it's one of the great, I think, underappreciated, by which I mean under under recognized, not not under loved, but I think we don't realize how much our constitution was reorganized in the, in the United States in, in the 1930s and became an administrative state. And it was a time, you know, may, maybe, maybe uh, sort of the Heber J. Grant presidency, right? Nearing uh, like Alexander, shoot, Thomas Alexander, Mormonism, Mormonism in transition. Is it Thomas mm-hmm. Alexander Thomas? That's One right. of those, you know, it's, it's a great history of kind of, Kind of the period that's that's ending about here, right? So it's a time when a lot of a lot of church culture and a lot of church practices uh, change, and so that's that's really great for that's really great fodder for sort of storytelling, and and with that we tried to try to build a character who was a very liminal man. He's a he's a person with his feet in two different worlds in multiple ways, right? So he grows up in a very female world with a, a mother and a grandmother, but, but they're gone and his wife's gone and now he's in a very, very male world, right? Uh, himself and his adopted son. He, he grows up in a world where a person might be respected or, or praised for, for being seen as having a gift with like a divining rod or a woman might be known as a spiritually gifted healer, right? Or someone for whom you would seek blessings of counsel. And uh, but he's as an adult, he's in a world where that's increasingly uh, sort of seen as suspicious. He's he's a guy who stands a bunch uh, across across a bunch of these sort of divisions. He is trying to be a hero to to protect people who need who need protecting, right? And and I should say what you know this this is all very thematic. He fights demons is what happens, right? The, the first book is actually about a demon in the bottom of a, of a coal mine in Helper, Utah, that's, that's corrupted a, a family that's not a real family, but we sort of modeled it a little bit on Tiankum Pratt, Parley Pratt's son, who was one of the early uh, settlers of Helper, Utah, sort of a tragic figure. And book two, The Jupiter Knife, is uh, set in Moab, and it's, it's about a werewolf cult. Originally, it was going to be set in Spanish Fork because Spanish Fork has a bunch of Icelandic settlers. They've got a they've got a statue downtown there to the Icelandic settlement, you know, contribution to Spanish Fork. But Aaron sort of said Spanish Fork. I've never heard of Spanish Fork. What's let's do this in Moab. Uh, so we just imagined a bunch of Icelandic immigrants to Moab instead. 
Well, and and in his adopted son, Michael, you also have someone who is a skeptic and a scientist, which is also something that is becoming much more prevalent and prominent and, and rapidly changing throughout uh, the 1930s as well. Yeah. And, and politically progressive. I mean, Hiram, if he has politics, I think the politics are basically like something like it seems like Mr. Roosevelt is trying to help. But uh, Michael really feels in, injustice. He's very quick to see a situation and see who seems to be getting a raw deal. And as he sort of feels it himself as the person who gets a raw deal in some ways, he's very quick to sort of speak up and, and punch back. So I'm very proud of the fact. So urban fantasy, I said the real genre is a cult detective. Uh, you won't find that section in Barnes and Noble. Urban fantasy is maybe sort of the genre that it's close to, but urban fantasy is a very sort of sexualized and romantic, full of, a genre full of romance and sexual tension, right? Mm. Like like the classic urban fantasy novel covers a girl looking, her body's turned away from you. She's looking back, she's holding a ball of glowing light in one hand and you can see her bum. Like this is the classic urban fantasy cover. I'm very proud of the fact that in, in The Cunning Man, there is almost zero romance. The, re the relationship that matters is between the father and his son. And it's about the father trying to provide wisdom. He's not as smart as Michael, you know, pound for pound, Michael is smarter, but Hiram knows things right from experience. And he wants to sort of inculcate a sense of, Hey, restraint and some patience. And, you know, if you're a little gentler at the edges, you can get some things done that you, if you won't, if you push as hard as you're pushing right now, and I want to keep you out of trouble without holding you back. And I, I love that. There's a line in the first book, where Michael's being a handful and the, the Danish mine camp head says to Hiram, just remember men with stupid children wish they were smart, <laughs> which, which, which for me, and I think for Aaron was a very resonant line. <laughs> I think, um, I think, yes, technically in, in today's modern categories, they are, they are urban fantasy most. They're also horror. But I think detective is also not that far off because you do have a little bit, a little bit of a of a Sherlock Holmes Watson dynamic between the two of them. Very different characters, very different approaches to, to how they go about investigation with both of them come in comparison to that classic detective story. Um, but you also get some Irene Adler characters as well, which is interesting. So there's a lot of magic in both books. Some of the magic works, some of it doesn't, some of it's fake, some of it is unexplained, some of it is, is somewhat explained, some of it can be explained within a Mormon worldview, some of it probably can't. And, and I know that in order to arrive at something like that, you both had to have a lot of books and resources that you probably looked at. And so what were some of the, the either books or just phenomenon that, that both you and Aaron kind of came up with that helped inform, uh, especially the Jupiter knife, because we, we started getting into things like astrology and, yeah. and in there. Yeah. It's too bad Aaron's not here. I'm, I'll have to, I'm going to tell an Aaron story. Um, I read a lot of books, you know, for book one, I read um, uh, studies of the cunning man or their various books, the cunning men, the, the cunning folk, cunning women and cunning men were, magical practitioners in in England 
It wasn't a witch. A cunning woman was a benevolent person. She was probably an artisan class, literate person in your village. And when you had needs that couldn't be satisfied locally otherwise because you were far away from London. So you need a, you need medical help or you need justice, but justice and doctors are far away. The cunning woman or the cunning man sometimes was someone who could help, right? And they, they had recipes for doing things. They knew how to heal the murrain of your cattle or to stop a storm or to shake off a curse or, uh, you know, cause your disease to be healed or whatever. So we have a, we have a lot of books about them, and 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 I read those. Uh, Hiram's sort of the bulk of what Hiram does is either is either Browker practice or is from that that cunning man, the kind of cunning man history and books uh, books about that. Like I like there's a book I've got a book I think uh, I think it's called the I think his name is Arthur Gauntlet. There's a published book I think it's called the 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 Notebook of Arthur Gauntlet, London Cunning Man. And something like that. And it's literally, it's the book where this 16th century guy who was a cunning man practicing in greater London wrote down everything, every scrap of knowledge he learned that was believed to believe to be effective. So that's a, that's the kind of reading that astrology, man, astrology is like a whole complex system in itself. Right. And there is a ton of hard data about where are the planets and when do the planets when they're in conjunction, when are they at 120 degrees to each other? When do we have, you know, three of them at, with 90 degrees of separation? So I will not claim any experience that. It's very complex. This is why in the story, Michael masters it. It's, it's book magic. It's magic about measurement and it's right got sort of science components in it. And it's Michael who starts figuring some of these things out. Now, here's, here's Aaron's story real quick. Aaron... I'm going to throw him under the bus. First of all, we started this project. I shipped him a pile of books. I don't think he's read any of them. <laughs> so that's fine. I read them, but Aaron is a practicing wizard. Aaron's in, in, in this event, Aaron needed to sell his parents old condo down in Colorado, having a hard time selling it. And, uh, his mom said, well, what you need to do is take a statue of St. Joseph and bury him head down on the property and ideally facing the for sale sign. And there was a, there was a prayer to recite over the statue and then the, the property will sell. And Aaron said, mom, that's magic. I'm not going to do that. She says, it's not magic. It's a prayer. It works. Everybody does this. So <laughs> they go and they bury the statue of St. Joseph and sure enough, the house sells. And after they have closed, Aaron realizes that he left the statue there. So he and his daughter, go back to the property at night with a shovel and a burlap sack to dig up the statue of St. Joseph uh, so that the next owners don't find it. So that's his contribution to the research. He just went out and did some actual wizardry. Practical magic. Yeah. Sold the house. <laughs> well, let's turn to uh, William and The Darkest Abyss. Can you tell us some about that book? Yeah. So The Darkest Abyss, Strange Moran Stories, features 18 stories. Nine of them were previously published in various venues, including dialogue. Several of those were finalists in the Mormon Lit Blitz, and of those, many of them I actually expanded for for the collection. And then the other set of stories, the other 50% of the stories were all written specifically for the collection, and they vary in length, they vary in genre, where they fall in the literary, literary experimental genre 
triangle that I find myself uh, moving around. Uh, there are a couple that are alternate history. There are some that could be considered like folk horror. There are a few that are science fiction or maybe science fantasy, depending on how you want to look at it. There's one that takes place in the spirit world and feature all sorts of different kind of characters and uh, formats. So it's not just like straight up short story, short stories, although there's some like that, but there are many that are told with, with various experimental forms. They sure are. They really make you stretch, a lot of them. You really have yes. to, you know, you can't just sit back and, and read the tale. You have to kind of go back and, I mean, the Emma going west, several times I had to go back and say, okay, what's going on in this world here? And try to re pick up the clues that you're laying there. There's a story where you have four different conversations going on in parallel tracks. And that, that, that <laughs> took a lot of work too. Why, why do you want to make us do so much work? So I, I've written my fair share of standard Mormon literary short stories. Uh, faithful realism, if, if anyone knows that term from, from Eugene England, that, that falls, definitely fall into that um, tradition. My first collection, um, Dark Watch and other Mormon American stories, about two-thirds of the stories fall into that, and then, and then the rest end up going into science fiction. And I have a novella and a short novel that will hopefully be coming out in the next couple of years that, that return to that, um, although in a little bit more experimental way. But if you're going to write Mormon fiction, then I think you should write in such a way that you're doing something that where the Mormonism helps or does things to the fiction. I think we have, I don't know that we have enough because you can never have enough, right? But there are certainly plenty of, of stories that if you take like what people think of the, you know, your standard New Yorker story, the epiphany story, or the conversion to the church story, or the leaving the church story, or the wacky experience on the mission story. There are plenty of those out there that are, that are told in kind of the, the standard format. And for me, if I'm going to write fiction, I want to be able to do something with both the Mormonism part of it and the fiction part of it. And so that's kind of what happened. And, you know, some stories happened really quick. Emma Travels West was written last. And it was written because I'm like, you know, there's a gap in this collection. We need another alternate alternate history story. How am I going to write this? And I just had this line kind of in my head, and, and, and it went from there. Something like The Only Fifteen is a story. It's what you'd call like a Mormon folk horror mm -hmm. story. It's about a group of parents in California in the early 2000s or the late 90s who have the opportunity to adopt children from a one of those new age cults that went wrong as so often happened in California and in this case all the adults except for the the leader cult leader were killed and so parents from various kind of backgrounds and faith traditions adopted all, all these children including a, a Mormon couple and then as the children get older things start to happen and originally that story didn't have a Mormon component at all. I wrote it from the, science, the, the, the National Science Fiction Fantasy Market, got a few rejections, thought about it, decided to actually make it Mormon, that it needed a, a stronger, a more particular grounding. And I, once I did that, all of a sudden the story was, was much, much better. But I kept having trouble with the ending. I submitted the story actually to Sunstone, and it was uh, an honorable mention in, in their fiction contest one year. But I still wasn't fully satisfied with it. And as I thought about putting it together for this collection, I realized that I needed to tell it in a different way. And so then, then the story actually became a transcript of this couple going back and forth and relating what has happened with this daughter, this adopted daughter of theirs. So 
Yeah, I just I wanted to play around with with Mormon themes and characters and concepts and settings, but do so in in a way that where there was meaning and form that derived from those, but not necessarily the ones that you would expect, because that's kind of just not the way my mind works. Not what we expect was a big thing with this. Oh, if I didn't say it, I love these stories. I mean, what a great experience jumping from one world to another, another with these, never knowing what to expect and constantly have to rework, you know, what I'm thinking, what I'm understanding with these flights of imagination of what could happen in a future Mormon or in, on, in alternative Mormon worlds. Yeah, sometimes alternative past or alternative presence. My favorite, I loved them all. I, I uh, my favorite was the story about an Ainu Mormon band on tour in the U.S. that basically undertakes a sort of covert operation, uh, which I think is is certainly one of my favorites. Maybe my favorite story in the collection. As it's, it's tremendous. It's really it's really powerful. I think it's uh, you know we we as a culture have been so good. I had my, my son's first grade teacher, I, I said, oh, I'm Mormon. He said, really? You know, don't be offended. You don't present as Mormon. And I hadn't been like cussing or drinking or anything, but but I know what he meant. You know, we're, we're so good at presenting a certain very kind of crisp, extremely mild kind of image. I think uh, one of the things the collection does wonderfully is to expand, is, is to push out in the corners and say, you know, what can Mormonism look like here? What can Mormonism look like inside a person like this? What can Mormonism look like in a time or a place that looks different from our own? It's delightful from start to finish. Thank you. Yeah, that's the darkest abyss in America. It take, does take place in the mid nineteen eighties, but the you know the standard way to tell that story is uh, would be to tell it from the divergence, which is something I read in a in a comment on a blog post on Juvenile Instructor, which um, there was a blog post that talked about how at one point there was a plan to move all the Mormons to uh, a reservation in, in Wisconsin. And somebody said, oh, you know what, this um, it wasn't a full diplomat, but, but basically this diplomatic attache to Japan a little bit later was like, hey, you know, I think we can solve both the Russian problem and the Mormon problem in one fell swoop, which was there uh, at the time, I guess, the, the perception uh, certainly of the Americans, perhaps also the Japanese government, was that the island of Al-Qaeda was vulnerable because there weren't that many people living on it. And they were afraid that, that Russians were going to kind of take it over and settle it and then be all that much closer to Japan. And and this was, of course, during the whole issue with polygamy in, in Utah and, and Johnson's army and all that kind of thing. And, and he's like, you know, we know that they can settle harsh places really well. Let's just take all the Mormons and settle them on this this island, and they can be a buffer. And so I took that, but instead of telling that story from there, I'm like, okay, well, what would happen this many years later, 100 years later, and, and what, what could be the story that I could tell? And of course, it's less about that alternate history, which which would be, you know, there's all sorts of fun things that you could do with that. But it's it really is, and, and this is something I discovered after when I, when I reread it, it's really about how we should feel and do feel and maybe don't feel, but should feel about, especially those of us who, who come from LDS families that, that were kicked out of Missouri, how we should feel about America and certain places in America and our relationship with it. But all told through this, of course, uh, uh, noise band, because, you know, if it's going to be the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, I can't have just a Mormon Tabernacle Choir. I have to turned into a William thing. And so it's, you know, they, they're a, a noise band who, who tours the U.S. And, and has these experiences with sites that are touristy and familiar for many LDS who, who live in the U.S. or have visited the U.S., but seeing it through their eyes, of the, the eyes of these 
these Latter-day Saints who grew up in Hokkaido. It seems like a theme of a lot of your stories, not a theme, but a kind of a background element is questioning the kind of Mormon American construct of Mormonism being tied to this kind of American exceptionalism and American prosperity. And it seems like you're constantly undermining that in one way or the other. Is that true? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And it's dangerous for writers to have projects. And certainly when I'm writing stories, I'm, I'm thinking about the characters and the setting and, uh, or the form of the story. And, but certainly, as has been pointing out, out to me by others, and, and certainly something that I feel is part of my project is, is to envision Mormonisms that aren't so closely tied to the ideological conditions that are set in, in the U.S., whether we're talking about conservatives versus liberals or just the whole notion of American exceptionalism. Because I started writing fiction after I thought I was going to be an academic. I thought I was going to be a literary professor. I was going to be a Martin J. Clark, and quickly realized that I just didn't have the appetite for <laughs> to to get a, a PhD. But um, for my master's degree, I did comparative literature, and so I am always my kind of mindset mindset has always been to kind of collide things together and position things against each other and figure out what interesting things can we find if we don't just buy into kind of the standard. Um, ideologies that are that are presented to us. There are a couple of stories, or just one in this collection. Certainly, I, I so I served a mission in Romania in 1992-1993, so not long after the revolution there. And that really changed my thinking of both about Mormonism, about kind of world politics. And it seems to me that one of the things that, that Joseph Smith was always trying to get us to understand, and I'm not saying that I, I'm necessarily contributing to that in, in the way that he did at all. But it, it's trying to get us to understand is there are different ways of thinking, and we should always be searching for those and looking for those. And the way I do that is, is through fiction, because it's just kind of the way that I grew up and, and, and am built. Now, it seems like both of you use gifts of the spirit quite a bit. And that's a, you know, that's a great way to kind of go in an interesting direction plot-wise. But do you think it's just for plot reasons, or is there something else? Why, why are you both so interested in new ways of thinking about gifts of the Spirit? One of the things that, that's great about Dave's books, especially about the figure of Hiram, is that we experience a character who still believes in an enchanted world. And one of my interests you know, from the beginning, even in, back in high school, but certainly in college, I specifically studied the, this period. And one of my, my interests is modernism, both literary modernism, but also that period of change in America from the, the late 1900s to the, the first part of the 20th century. And Mormons lagged a little bit with that because of the fact that we were all living off, off by ourselves for a while there uh, in the West. And so what I both believe and I'm interested in is this notion that whether we're talking about creative power, um, technological power, folk practice power, or spiritual power, that modernism has stripped us of a, of a lot of our heritage. And so it's both a spiritual thing, both stretching, you know, stretching ourselves spiritually and thinking about what where we could grow spiritually. You know, it, it was certainly in the scriptures, there are figures who actually are able to affect the physical world with their spiritual powers, but also even more so as a, a statement against modernism. Now, don't get me wrong. I also am very interested in modernism, and you know, I studied post-structural theory, and, and so it gets all kind of twisted up and complicated. 
But to me, I find that complication a lot more interesting than just sticking straight with the kind of the rational and or modernist point of view. Uh, I think there are things that we need to resist in this world, and they're not always the things that we that, that get commonly preached in Sunday school. And one way to resist those is to believe in and think about, you know, other modes of thinking and, and accessing spirituality. In fact, the first story in the book is called Proof Sister Greeley is a Witch, even though Mormons don't believe in witches. And that kind of says everything and also actually intersects with, with the Cunning Man books. Because even though this takes place a lot, uh, a lot later, Sister Greeley is certainly someone who, who engages in that, in that folk magic. And not just folk magic, but sort of folk practices, right? Yeah. I'm very sympathetic with everything that you said there, William. I think there's a kind of hubris. I, I don't know that we're particularly susceptible to this. The Victorians clearly did it. I bet the Romans did it too. I think human beings are susceptible to a kind of a distortion of perception in which we look at ourselves and say, aha, we are the ones who have figured it out. We know the true rules of the universe and our ancestors were fools. And those other people over there are also fools and we get the prize. Yep. And I, and I think that's terrible. I think that's terribly short-sighted. I think there is a great kind of epistemological wisdom in, in the idea of binding ourselves to the dead. The dead knew things. They saw things differently than we do. They lived in a different country. Even if they didn't, the dead of Provo 50 years ago lived in a different country than, than I live in now and, and uh, had different modes of thinking and discourse. And I think... I think if you spin your wheels and you're not looking backward, then you have no way of knowing whether you're making any progress. You're just moving and convincing yourself it's progress. And I think we, I think we have to give the dead their due. And I think we have to be able to sort of think about them in our actions, right? Take account of their decisions and, and uh, what they've left us as inheritances in our institutions. And, and I think spiritual gifts is not a, is not a subject that, I was, I was not taught spiritual gifts in any of my public school education, but it's it's something that it's a way people have thought and talked for a long time, and, and I think there's there's a lot of reason to think. If I were not a believer, here's a here's a non-believer point, right? There there are uh, researchers into the placebo effect who think that as much as eighty percent or more of medical benefit experience for modern medicine comes from placebo. So if that's true, how is that really different from laying on of hands? If the person is convinced they can receive benefit, and they do, maybe there's not really as clear a dividing line as we think between the doctor who's prescribed me my beta blockers and the home teacher who comes over to give me a blessing to calm my heart. Really, the healing is coming from somewhere else. So I do believe in spiritual gifts. I think that's an important part of Joseph's teaching. But even if I didn't, I think it's important to not forget what our grandmothers knew and talk about it. Even if you say, you know, here's, here's what my grandmother said. I see it a little differently, right? But at least my children and maybe their children and their children will hear it. And we can, we can have that Elijah link that passes wisdom and hum humanity across generations. There's a story in my collection called With All Our Dead, which features a a woman who at the age of eight basically can see and hear many of her ancestors. And, and these ancestors, some of them stick with her for a while, and some of them 
she loses. And in fact, the, the story is, is sort of an accounting of, of, of what happens with her, the various dead that attend to her. And sometimes what finds its way into fiction is things that you like actually yearn for. Sometimes it's not. Like I do not want to face any of the horrors found in the Cutting Man books, that's for sure. And certainly with a story like that, it was like, you know, I do wish I knew that more about what my ancestors thought and what they would say about the situation that I am I am in right now. And that it, and, and maybe if I wasn't so modern, because for all that I talk about modernism, I'm certainly very much a, a product of, of my times. You know, a college-educated, middle-class white person living in, in the upper Midwest, working as a knowledge worker and shopping at Trader Joe's, just like everybody else. And so also through, I think, throughout uh, all my stories, you often find a certain yearning for for experiences that I haven't had the privilege of having yet. I love that story with all mm-hmm. with all our dead. With all our dead, it was much, it was a lower key story than some of the other ones. But I, I love. I have to give you guys a break a little bit, you know. <laughs> I love the sociability of the, the relationships that she had with her ancestors, which was so much like living ancestors that sometimes. They might get annoyed with you and they just stop visiting for a while or something about her life makes it too difficult for them to be in their life at that time. And, and all the kind of foibles of humanity are there. There's wisdom. They have this wisdom they impart to her and they're, they're very useful and she loves them, but they're also, they're still the spirits that they were when they were alive. Yeah. And that, and that to me, both, both with that and, and the last one, a Mormon writer visits spirit prison. And some of the other stories as well is, you know, one of the superpowers of Mormonism is is our belief that we carry with us our individuality into the next life, and perhaps have always had it with us, even before we were spirit children, right? And so I, I talk on the sister podcast, Face and Hat, in the Dialogue Podcast Network about that, actually. Go check that episode out. If I really believe that, what could we do with that? And what might that mean? In a Mormon writer visits spirit prison, that's the one that Andrew was talking about earlier, where you have the four conversations happening all in blocks of four, basically. There's four conversations, and, and each each conversation before it rotates is the, the Mormon writer and the person who's visiting saying one thing and then responding and then saying another thing and then responding. And one of the, the writers, because he, he's, he's visiting writers, um, writers that he admired or, or writers that he actually knew when he was living in alive in, in, in the mortal world. And, and one of them is, is someone whose mind has, has kind of, not necessarily unraveled, but condensed to such a, an extreme state that it's just kind of these very dense allusions to every, every, anything and everything. And, and that came out about because I'm like, well, what would that experience be like to not have a body and to be basically with your mind? And especially if you're in, quote, spirit prison, and so maybe not interacting with as, as many people or, or not feeling like you want to uh, interact with, with as many other spirits, what would that do to, to someone's mind? And so that's then what the story becomes, or at least one of the strands of the, the story. Yes, there is a spiritual valorization of individuality, but at the same time, there is also an insistence that we are saved in community, Right. Yep. And so one element of that story with all our dead is is that over time they stop visiting her. And the sense is sort of when the time has passed, when they've given what they have to give, maybe, and I don't think this is the language the story itself uses, but maybe sort of when she's incorporated them. When I've learned the lesson of the of that grandfather or that grandmother, then I then then I'm done. Right. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I absolutely love that that kind of tension between the individuality and the the corporate community, you know, as well as kind of living versus dead, past versus future. That's a great story. Do either of you have a question or any other comment about the other person's work? I have a question. What should we read into the fact that you have two short story collections and they both have dark in the title? Does everyone be called, you know, the darker darkness? I'm... <laughs> the outer darkness? No. The outer uh, darkness? This, I wonder. <laughs> the funny thing is, is the first collection is called Dark Watch and Other Mormon American Stories. And, and, and it's based on a dialogue story, a story that appeared on dialogue called Dark Watch that's science fiction. And that's ultimately a positive story, a little bit elegiac, perhaps, but ultimately positive. It's about a, a, a couple who no longer identifies as Mormon, but who kind of act as perhaps a way station in the future for Mormons trying to get to the main body of the states. And so they are literally watching in the dark for, for their people and, and also for any Mormons out there who might be coming down along the trail. And the Darkest Abyss is the name of this band, right? This noise band that come yeah. and, comes and tours America. And so, obviously, it comes from the Joseph Smith quote, Thy mind, O man, if thou wilt lead a soul into salvation, much stretch, must stretch as high as the utmost heavens, and search into and contemplate the darkest abyss and the broad expanse of eternity. Thou must commune with God. And certainly that, that quote is a little bit of a darling among those who like to live on the edges of Mormonism and, and those who are into creating culture within Mormonism. And, you know, as someone who listened to quite a bit of Joy Division as a teenager, there is just that kind of that emo side of me, right? But also, it has to do with the fact that if we don't understand the dark, so so there's darkness, right? There's the darkness that is like the, that you find in culture that is just kind of like darkness for, sometimes for darkness's sake. There's the darkness that's truly dark, that's truly evil. When I talk about darkness, what I'm really talking about is the state that we're currently in. I am preoccupied with the fact that we live in a world that is ensconced in the flow of time and have mortal bodies, and that somehow that is a step in a overall progression of knowledge and wisdom and community building and developing attributes and learning, and yet is a condition of darkness, right? We see through a glass darkly. So what I'm always trying to do is not so much talk only about the light, but see how the light and the darkness refract against each other and see what kind of interesting corners and shadows and, and strange prisms we can conjure up while we're stuck here. My question for Dave is, what's interesting about the Cutting Man books is that Hiram is someone who is certainly liminal, but is also firmly ensconced in the Mormon experience of the 1930s. And there's a sense where a lot of the things that he does, a lot of his practice isn't covered in the books because like, that's the boring stuff, right? That's the stuff that happens every day, but, but really informs, informs who he is and what he ends up doing as he confronts the darknesses, the dark powers that he confronts. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what he both gets and maybe doesn't get out of his everyday experience as a, as a beet farmer in Lehigh. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Let me make one comment on the darkest abyss first. And this may not be anything that you meant, but it was what I was thinking when I read the story. Because the, the thing that the darkest abyss smuggles out of North America <laughs> is 
foundation stone for the Nauvoo temple, right? Yes. So one of the connections that I was making, and, and maybe this is not one you intended, is that there are uh, some of the old Jewish legends about the creation and the flood connect both of them to the temple and describe a temple in which, which sits atop an abyss and the floodwaters recede into the abyss, the well mm-hmm. beneath beneath the, the Jerusalem temple, so that mm-hmm. the foundation stone is the name of it, the Eben Shatia, which is on which the ark rests and which is still there. And if you're a Muslim, you can go look at it. Or if you're not, it's on Wikipedia. Is the is the foundation stone that that covers the abyss and that renders possible the the creation of the ordered world that we know. Maybe you did not intend that. Maybe maybe you did. But uh, that was one of the things I was thinking. Yeah. See, you're much more well read than I am, Dave. But uh, you know, that's not so true. It- you have all these literary critical terms, and you say them, and I go. I think I know what that means, but man, I'm not going to say anything because I'm probably wrong. But no, I, I was not like that. That kind of depth of knowledge is is not part of part of my thing, other than just like kind of what the temple means and kind of what what you would hope uh, any religion um, would be trying to do, which is beat back the darkness enough for us to to get, have enough hope to to do the things we need to do as as people to to love each other and, and learn and grow together. Yeah. So Hiram Woolley's day-to-day practice, it's pretty light about what his, like you don't see him saying a lot of prayers or, or doing things like that. Although some, and Mm -hmm. you know, there's this interesting line. I think that anybody kind of writing in the space confronts at some point where you're like, well, what am I willing to put on paper and what do I feel? Where do I feel like I shouldn't, write these things right so there there is a line in the first book where Hiram Woolley is is retreating from from a a foe and trying to keep it at bay with fire and reciting bible verses where there's a line that says he raises his arm to the square and you know the ancient uh, gesture of covenant and commanding or something like that right Aaron deleted that, and I put it back in, and then he looked it up and said, "Oh, that's a thing." That a thing. <laughs> yep, I certainly took note of it. So, so there's a, if there's a real life Hiram, this is clearly a guy who who prays. I think probably he's clearly a guy who prays not not in a rote fashion or trivially. He's a guy who, like you say, his daily ritual is farming, and if he doesn't, if you don't feed the hogs and get sugar beets out of the ground, then you're in trouble. You know, I think this is a guy who works. I think it's a guy uh, who prays and takes prayer seriously. And I think think if this is a real guy, so the reason I wrote that scene, the reason I felt like I needed to write that scene is if this is a if this were a real guy, I think he he doesn't see a difference. He doesn't say, and maybe this goes back to kind of spiritual gifts and the way ancestors think about things. He doesn't box things in his head and say, well, that over there is religion, and this over here is magic, and this over here is the real world. It's all just the world to him, right? Again, I'm going to walk up to a line here. I apologize if I make anybody uncomfortable. So in the story, he carries a Cairo medallion. Now, that is a real thing, okay? That's a, an iron stamp disc with the symbol of the Greek letters Cairo that Constantine 
claimed he had seen a vision in hoc signo vinces, right? And he becomes Christian, right? And so that's a real medallion people have warned to protect themselves from harm. That's a little bit of a stand-in, right? That's a little bit of a stand-in. Mm-hmm. Because I think if Hiram Woolley is a real 1935 Mormon guy, I think the real medallion that he is carrying that has symbols on it to protect him from harm is not a disc he wears around his neck, right? I think it's something he wears on his body. So that's kind of how I split the baby. There were some things I'm going to imply and some things where I said, here's as, here's as far as I'm going to go. But I think, I think Hiram, I think, I think he's unified. I think he, he stands across a, a lot of thresholds. I don't think he compartmentalizes his religion over in one part of his life. I think it's everything. Yeah, and it's interesting. He's living in a time when the church is starting to compartmentalize a little bit more, par- partly out of necessity. I mean, look, we kind of had to at some point. If we were going to continue to, to kind of be part of America, if, and certainly as, as economic conditions affected sort of uh, where Mormons lived, this would accelerate certainly after World War II with the out-migration, which is part of my own personal ancestry. So that's another thing that I think comes up, you know, I talk about yearning. Another thing that comes up often in my stories are, is a sense of being able to live not just in relation to sort of where your mind is at in terms of the enchanted world, but in a an actual community that would somewhat support that notion of not having the difference between, you know, the farm chores that you do are also the farm chores that you're doing so that you can survive, but they're also the farm chores that you're doing because you're going to then go pay tithing with it, but also you're going to go help the widow down the road with it. And the prayers that you're saying are not just the prayers that you'll hopefully make good decisions and be protected as you drive your Ford around, but also that this specific thing with the harvest will happen the way it needs needs to happen. And so, yeah, so I, I am definitely quite taken with the, the Cunning Man books, because even though the plot of them are very much, it's like you said, it's very much an occult detective novel with, with, with strong horror elements, but there's this foundation of it, right, This that is Hiram, that represents a, a Mormon worldview that I only experienced the very end of as I was growing up in Kanab in the 1970s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, me too. Thank you. You're very kind. So let's hear about what's coming up next for you guys. Now, Dave, I am a great fan of the Witchy War series. It starts with Witchy Eye, this an alternative history fantasy set in the 1800, early 1800s, North America. Is there more of those series coming? Yes, there are two books I need to do. I'm overdue. 2020 through 2022 for reasons unrelated to writing but you know my my main day job gig is corporate training which basically was revolutionized by trauma in Mm -hmm. 2020 so i'm sort of two years recovering so i'm a little behind so there are two books serpent mother is about the wedding of sarah calhoun to the heron king and then serpent son is the final book it's about the the remaking of the order of the empire and the then the the return of peter plowshare so i need to write those two i'm overdue and working on fifth one serpent mother well you have so much so many balls up in one area you produce a lot of work so i'm always very impressed and i can't i'm i can't keep up keep up that's uh, i feel frustrated i need to, <laughs> to get up with this uh is there gonna be more hiram woolley works Yes, there will. If Aaron won't cooperate, I'll write without him. No, I'm just kidding. Aaron, I'd never do that. Yeah, we think that the third one is tentatively entitled The Familiar Spirit and should be set in the 
the polygamous colonies colonies of northern Mexico. Wow. So fingers crossed we can write that maybe as early as this summer. Great. And William, how about you? What's your next project? Well, I have a short story called The Ward Organist coming out in in Dialogue, the winter issue. So the fall issue just recently dropped, so it'll be in the Award winter issue. Story. Congratulations. Yes. Thank you. And then I think that the next step for me is I'm going to self-publish uh, the novella and short novel I mentioned earlier. The novella is called The Unseating of Dr. Smoot. And it uses the structure of a typical LDS sacrament meeting. So it starts with the prelude music and then goes to announcements and opening prayer. And it's about a single female Mormon academic who is trying to get tenure at the University of Wisconsin. And her her tenure clock has had a couple more years added to it because they don't feel she's quite ready. And the story takes place as she flies to to Provo to give a talk on landscape and the novels of Marilyn Robinson at BYU. But as part of that, Utah Valley University kind of tagged on a not quite interview, but maybe we get to know each other interview that could possibly lead to her getting hired there if things go well. And it's her preparing for and navigating both those occurrences, as well as meeting up with a niece and her dad, who's been somewhat recently widowed, and a bunch of friends. And it's about art and Mormonism and landscape and what it's like to to leave Utah and maybe want to go back, but but maybe not. And then um, the courtship of Elder Cannon is is a project I started a long time ago and didn't get very far with, and has since finished. It's a that is um, about a member of the 70 who who is a widower who gets set up on a blind date with a literature professor at the University of Utah, and he's set up by uh, an apostle and, and his wife. And it tells the story of this courtship through dialogue, internal monologue, talks that he gives, training that he gives, and writing in his journal. And so these are kind of companion works that really kind of get into, um, and it's set in a in sort of a year or so after the Proposition 8 happened in California. And although no, none of the kind of the political and, and theological and sort of heavy church-related stuff that has happened in the, in the first two and a half decades of the, tw- of the 21st century in Mormonism are, are like kind of hammered in these, but they kind of form this burbling background against which I kind of do my faithful realism thing with a, a pair of, of sort of kind of educated Mormons. So somewhat in experimental form, but definitely faithful realism, and, and hopefully we'll strike a chord with, with some readers. Okay, thank you. Congratulations, that's really cool. Thanks. Well, thank you for listening to the Dialogue Book Report. This show is produced and edited by me with additional editing and music by Daniel Foster Smith. Our content manager is Emily Jensen. This show is part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent podcasts which promote inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, and arts and culture. It includes wonderful shows like Face and Hat, featuring Aaron Brewster and Eric Jepson, which we, which William was on recently. And you can find out more about all of them at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Dave, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And William, thank you very much. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Dave.